Father, we thank you so much for this time we have here tonight and how you have blessed us with your word and showing us things in this marvelous book of Jonah and helping us, Lord, to see things that uh, as we've opened up and slowly have walked through this book, Lord, so many things have become apparent to us. And it just shows so much of the merciful and loving God that you are. And we'll see that again tonight as we delve into this final part of this book. And I just ask, Lord, again, your spirit, Lord, would just teach, teach us, speak to us, and help us to glean something that would deepen our walk with you. That is our prayer, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So as we get into Jonah tonight, and the chapters, uh, chapter 4 of what we're doing, starting at verse 7, actually this is going to go through verse 8, but we're going to go through the, the rest of the book here. But um, starting here at verse 7, it says, But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so that it withered. But the sun rose, when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should, I, should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? That's our passage. So where we left off last time was Jonah. Um, as if you recall, Jonah has been in the city of Nineveh. He has been preaching for their destruction. They, instead of, uh, as probably, well, what he was hoping, that they wouldn't turn to God, that uh, instead of doing that, they did repent. Even the king of Nineveh sits, gets down and he asks forgiveness and makes a proclamation to the whole city that we are going to get away from our idols and we're going to worship God. The greatest revival in human history goes on where this massive city, now we see all these people ex, uh, accepting God's mercy and God grants mercy to them. And Jonah gets so upset, he goes outside a distance from the city because he's probably still hoping for like a Sodom and Gomorrah type destruction to fall on these people. So he goes out and it says on a hill that he sat. And as I showed you last time, you have to go quite a ways out there, um, miles out to get to a, like a mountainous area um, because Nineveh sits where two rivers are joining on this river plain. And so he's out there hoping that God is going to destroy this place. And as he's sitting there, God, he makes a little booth and God makes this plant miraculously grow very quickly and cover him to protect him from the heat there in northern Iraq where this is all taking place uh, outside the city of Mosul. And that's where we found uh, we left him last week. And now at this point he is thinking, no doubt he is thinking that God is blessing him because God has now done another miracle and he's God is answering his, you know, it's hot and everything and God is granting him um, this plant to give him comfort. And so we left him like, wow, this is, everything's going good now. God's really going to be nice to me and everything. And instead of being in the city teaching these people, he's still sitting outside hoping that God is going to kill him. 
And that's where we left him. So we saw Jonah who was, and the words that were used in Scripture last time, <laughs> Jonah was exceedingly glad and feeling blessed by God because that plant that came up and giving him relief from the scorching sun. So he's feeling really good that God, oh, God, you're on my side. Okay, you're going to do this. Okay, God, why don't you let the lightning come down and zap these people really good. And that's where he's, he's hoping. That's where his heart is because he definitely does not have a heart for these Ninevites that he's been, talked to, uh, been talking to. So going back to verse 7, it says, But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. So this whole point here where we see, and we talked about this once before, it says God appointed. Four times this comes up in this book, that God appointed. God, and the, the word here for God is the word, as we said last week, it's Elohim. Elohim is the name of God, the creator God, the God who made everything. It's going back into the book of Genesis. This is where it says, in the beginning, God, that's Elohim, and it's that type of name of God, because God has many names. Oh, there are so many different names of God, you know, El Shaddai, Adonai. There are so many different ones. And when we say Elohim, and by the way, Elohim is a plural word. Remember, because God is three in one, it is a plural form, but it is the creator God, the one who created nature, created plants, created worms and everything. It's that. And Again, God is using nature to teach Jonah. It's remarkable in this book how many times God uses nature, how he, he uh, has control, he is sovereign over nature, and he uses nature to influence his little wayward missionary that he has here. And that's what's going on. This plant that was a special blessing now to Jonah was about to change. He has just been thinking, wow, okay, God is blessing me. He, he put this, this little... Uh, plant over me and I've got nice shade, etc., etc. But that is about to change because of this special worm. And that worm, by the way, in so, if you go back to the original Hebrew where it says a worm, actually that is also possibly in Hebrew a way of referring to plural of worms. So um, though I look through, I don't know how many translations, over 25 different translations, not one of them gave us an indication of the worm being plural, but in the original Hebrew, it could have been. Um, don't know. But Hebrew is a really strange language, ancient Hebrew. But um, it attacked the plant, and so the plant does wither. So now, I mean, put your... Put yourself in his shoes. You're sitting there, and this is hot outside. And that time, uh, that period of, of the world that is very desert-like, it's um, where he is now sitting out in the wilderness, can't be very comfortable. He starts to build this booth, in fact. And now um, this plant that God had just blessed him with, God takes away. I mean, he knows that. He knows God did this. No question about it. Um, if God made this plant supernaturally grow, and then all of a sudden by the next day it's dead, Jonah's got to know, okay, God's hand's in this. God is now, I thought he was blessing me, now he's cursing me. And Jonah's one of these, boy, I just keep getting cursed all the time. Well, he keeps messing up. I mean, gee, what this guy does. Looking at verse 8, it says, When the sun rose, God appointed, here we are again, the same phrase, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonas that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it's better 
for me to die than to live. So God is really just teaching his unmissionary-minded prophet to love the lost. That's what he's actually doing here. And I'll tell you, be honest, I used to always get troubled by this, this uh, verse. That why would a scorching heat, I mean, the guy's living in the Middle East. It's not the coolest place in the world anyway. Even in Israel, uh, you go to the Dead Sea, you go to um, Qumran or uh, anywhere at Masada, anywhere around the Dead Sea, even in the springtime, it's 110 degrees. Uh, when we were there this last May, it was 110 degrees, and we went there in the morning, and it was 110 degrees at Masada. Um, it, it's hot. And then we went to Qumran, and oh my gosh, it was just, it, it's really hot. It's, it's not humid. It's a dry heat, but it's an intense heat. And I remember even, uh, I don't mind, most of you know, I enjoy hot weather. But I'll tell you, when we were in Qumran, I was looking for shade. Um, I was walking around in these ruins. Um, Steve Notley, who I co-lead these trips with, he was doing the teaching at Qumran. It's one of his favorite things to talk about. So I just let him go off and let him do his thing. And I was walking around taking a few photographs and stuff. But I remember literally standing there like, my gosh, this is unbearable. It was really hot. So Jonah is from the Middle East. And then having you know, this experience over at Nineveh, and I've never been to Mosul, I've never been over there, so I don't know for sure, but I'm telling you, it always puzzled me, why would he be so faint? Now, remember what he possibly looks like. His character has changed physically because of his little encounter of being inside of a fish. So, he, you know, there's, there's a little bit of thing here. But God's wanting him to have a love for these people where he should be back in that city, not sitting out here on a hill hoping for their destruction. He should have been back in the city teaching them. Um, and not just for the lost people of Israel, because that's where he's really concerned. I mean, he's a prophet of Israel to Jeroboam II. And as we've said before, Jeroboam II was not a good king, though the country of the upper kingdoms um, uh, called Israel, or sometimes called Ephraim, the upper kingdom, not the kingdom of Judah to the south, but the upper kingdom did its best. It prospered the most under Jeroboam II's reign. Even though they were prospering, it was one of the most ungodly times, as we talked about before also. And Jonah is a prophet for this. And Jonah's been preaching to his people, no doubt, because we read about that in the book of Kings, and that he was a prophet to his people, but they were totally rejecting God. I mean, they want anything really to do with God. And so God sends him to, to the Assyrians, the enemy, and here he has success. It's got to be sort of the strangest thing. You know, your own people, where you're sent to and you're supposed to preach to, they don't accept. God sends you to the enemy, and then they do accept. And this, no doubt, puzzled him also. And he had no, no love for these people whatsoever. So... You know, there was just not love lost on the people of Israel. You know, God wants him to love these Gentiles, too. And it's always puzzled me, too, when you get to the New Testament, how the Jews, we talked about this, if you were in the John series, many times this came up, how the Jews hated the Gentiles and never thought the Gentiles would ever be accepted by God. How in the world did they miss books like this? <laughs> you know, how did Nicodemus, the great teacher, um, how did he miss this, that, you know, the Gentiles are also going to be blessed by God? You know, 
but that's the way it was. So, but again, we go back to it says God appointed. So here it is, God appointed. The same God that we talked about just a moment ago, the same phrasing is used, God appointed. That's Elohim, the creator God, again, using nature to influence his unmissionary-minded uh, prophet here. Appointed a scorching east wind and the sun. So now what we've got here, God's using nature as he's done so many times in this book, and he's going to teach Jonah a really serious lesson. Now, what kind of storm is this? And like I say, this always bothered me a little bit. How could he get that faint, wanting to die just from that? I mean, was he just that depressed? Or was there something about this storm that happens there that really makes him, him uh, faint and, and is really making him suffer even more? So, what kind of storm was this? Well, we're not told a name to it, but I found out as I researched this past week, desert storms. It sounds like a military operation, which it was, but I looked up desert storms and read a lot of things and even some uh, sections in some different books and stuff like that, that like those, trying to find out more information because I'm rather ignorant on this. And I found out some fascinating things, that there's different names of desert storms. One is called a Sirocco. A uh, very common thing I found out then. And another one, uh, another type of a storm, or actually just another word for it, is a simum, um, an extremely hot, dry sandstorm. I've got a photograph here showing one of these. And you can see houses in the background, this desert-like area, but this massive cloud just coming. And this is something what this was probably like. Um, and in studying this, and people who have experienced these, they talk about how it stops the... the uh, perspiration on your body it is so intense the wind blowing the heat the sand the dust everything it's like being sandblasted in a way but it dries up the path they say inside your mouth you just have no saliva whatsoever during this period and it produces physical suffering tremendous suffering that these things are really hot when you go through these. There was one of the books um, I came across was one called The Travels in Numbia uh, by a guy by the name of John, I think it's John Lewis Burkhart. And he's the guy who discovered Petra, the archeologist who discovered Petra. Uh, he lived in the 1800s and he wrote many times on many of his journeys and archeological journeys. And he talked about one of these Sirocco's like going through one of these. And I'm just going to quote it. I'm going to take a section of his book here and let you see how he's describing it. And by reading this book, This Travels in Nubia, I, I got a better idea of what was going on with Jonah. It's just not that he's sitting there and the wind's blowing and it's hot. Watch how this is described. Quote, the wind, although with oppressive heat, when the whirlwind raises the dust, it then increases several degrees in heat. In the Simon of Essene, the thermometer mounted to 121 degrees in the shade. He goes on to describe how the, your skin, you have no sweat coming out, and your skin is just being literally blasted like with the sand, like literally getting sandblasted, and that it's irritating, it's painful. And you, your uh, orifices are trying to breathe, your mouth, this stuff is just going inside, it's in your, you can't open your eyes, your eyes are getting scratched by the sand moving everywhere. He described this as a, as a real terrible torment. That he was talking about how bad it was. Now, if we take that type of a storm, which it probably was something like this, because um, these things are in that area, 
even around Mosel, you get these type of storms. And when this one, and God is really intervening here because he said God appointed. So God's got his hand on this. You know God is really going to, he's teaching a lesson. So he's going to come down a little harder probably in, in this situation. But um, this then uh, tells us because Jonah's physical appearance since that fish, having scars in his body, having no melanin, uh, probably in his skin after the digestive juices got to him, the hair's gone on his body, all of this going on, yeah, he's really going to be suffering through this experience. By having this lack of what protection the body can give, he's lost. So it had to be. I mean, I wouldn't want to be in a situation like that, even like right now. Give me the physical characteristics of Jonah. That's got to be terrible. No wonder then, as I started reading these things, no wonder this guy is saying, man, I don't want to live anymore. You know, he's, I mean, he's depressed now because God's not blessing him. God is cursing him. He's taking this as a curse. And so he just says, okay, God, I've had enough of this. He asked that he might die. And he says, it's better for me to die than to live. So that's what he, there's where he's at how he's got to that point. And if you see, like I said, I never quite understood this till I researched these storms, and now I can understand a little bit better what this guy was going through. So, his blessing had now become a curse, and he felt failure because God was going to pardon Nineveh. And that's not what he wanted. And God was punishing him. So just the day before, he's thinking, wow, maybe God's going to go ahead and punish these people. God's providing me with shelter, with the plant. Now God totally takes that away. He starts punishing him. Obviously, nothing's coming down from heaven to destroy this city. So he's absolutely feeling depressed. And as we've talked about before, there's a lot of similarities between Jonah at this point and Elijah at Mount Carmel when he did the sacrifice and, and then Jezebel says, you know, I'm going to kill you because you killed all my prophets. The Lord or the gods do to me worse than I'm going to do to you if you're still alive by this time tomorrow. And Elijah heads off into the desert um, to run away and gets to the Mount, uh, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, and sits down and says, okay, God, I've had enough of this. I'm the only one left. Nobody's listening to me. What I say doesn't matter. Just take my life. And Jonah is sort of in the same thing. Um, it's not going the way I wanted to go. My ministry is not working the way I want it to work. God, I'm a failure to my own people. I couldn't call them back. <laughs> Instead, you're saving these cotton-picking Assyrians. I, I, I'm a false prophet to them because I said you're going to destroy the city. Instead, you're blessing them. Oh, I've had enough of this. Just kill me. And that's where he's at. That's how low he comes. You get to verse 9, he says, But God said to Jonah... Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Now, this is an interesting um, verse. And as we talked about once before, when God used the exact same phrasing here, do you do well to be angry at the beginning of chapter 4? We looked at a couple of different translations to see, is there a, another way of looking at this? So looking at another word-for-word -word translation, going out of the New American Standard, it says, then God said to Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? Or we also, when we compared this before in uh, a few weeks ago, I looked at the World English Bible, which is also like a word-for-word -word translation, and it says, God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the vine? So English Standard makes it a little harder to understand, but that's basically what's being said here. But I want, I want to ask you something. Um, I'm going to go back here to the English uh, Standard and... Well, we can stay with this, I guess. Same thing. But um, who's going to be talking to him? 
Um, if this is like God speaking to him, and in a way, is it right for you to be angry about, about the plant? Is it right for you to be angry about the vine? Instead of coming down with real stern punishment, God is asking a question, which initiates a response, of course, but in asking a question, in a way, what's going on, it's like a father speaking to a young son who's going wayward. And instead of just coming down, why, you're doing this all wrong, instead of doing this, he approaches with a question to get him to think. You know, as a teacher in school, sometimes I would ask students questions and stuff like this, and if they give me something totally bizarre, one of the things they taught us, you know, in, in college was if you ask students a question and they give you a totally bizarre answer, you, you, they're not even on the right planet with you or what you're thinking and stuff like this. Don't ever come down on him and the student and say, you know, boy, you are so hot. No, you don't do that. That does not help a person. But you try and steer them back into things. So you speak kindly to them. No, that's not quite right or that's not exactly right. Thank you for answering. But it's a little more than that, Can you, or it's in a different way, and you sort of approach it that way. God is doing that with Jonah, and he's taking this as a teaching opportunity, and that's what's happening. It's, uh, he, he's, again, if, if you look at this, God is showing mercy to this goofed-up prophet. Instead of slamming him, he's being very gentle and leading him into the right direction. That's what's going on, and that's mercy. It really is. Verse 9, and he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. What reeks all through this is self-pride, does it not? This is just a prideful statement. Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. What reasons did he have? Why, why should he be so upset? What's going on? He had no reason at all except... For this sinful situation he was, he was being extremely selfish. He was bearing, being very prideful. His ego had got in the way of his ministry. I mean, that was Jonah's problem all through this. From chapter 1, he sometimes had problems with this. And, um, and these are all things that God despises. Pride. Pride is, was the sin of Satan. That was the first sin when Satan wants to be as good as God. You know, he didn't want to take over God, if you read Scripture. What Satan was wanting to do was he wanted, well, I'm better than all these angels. You're better, God, than all these angels. I'm better than all these angels. I should be, they should be worshiping me just like you. It was a pride thing, and that was Satan's fall. And so he's doing exactly the same type of sin. His ego, his self-centeredness is what his problem is. So after all of this, we finally are starting to see what Jonah's real problem is and that's what it is and there's a faith lesson here for us because if we get caught in this type of sin in the sin of selfishness and pride God sometimes just like we see here God will sometimes bring hardships upon us and we think boy God you're being awful hard on us well it's <laughs> he's still being merciful he doesn't kill you right out which he could a person asked me a couple of years ago, I asked this, they said, don't you have a problem, Michael, with how God is, is um, so hard on, on sinners and so hard when people do even one sin and he condemns everybody to eternal damnation just because of even just one little sin? And I remember saying to him, I said, you know what really puzzles me? Not how God, you know handles uh, this idea of just making one sin. What amazes me is we are so sinful, I'm amazed that he doesn't kill us all. 
I said, that's where I am puzzled. How can God forgive me for all of the things I do? And I mean, really, you'd think if we legally, God could, as soon as we make any mistake, he could just zap us out dead. That's with Adam and Eve. He could have done the same thing. But God is very merciful. And as we've talked about many times in this study, this, this book really shows a lot about the mercy that God gives, even to people not walking with him, and even to very, very evil people, as these Assyrians were. So sometimes, not always, but sometimes, when we're going through hardships, sometimes we need to take a look and see, is there some type of pride sin or something, some type of sin that's causing this? Now, please listen carefully to what I'm about to say. I'm not saying that when you go through a hardship, it's because you have sinned and God's trying to correct you or he's punishing you for that. That is not what I'm talking about. I mean, I remember back in 2003 and I had um, popped a disc out. I, I actually herniated a couple discs and tore a disc in my back and the disc had just burst. Um, and I was really laid up. I was in a lot of pain. And I remember a person calling me up on the phone and saying, you know why this is happening to you, Michael? It's because you got some unconfessed sin of pride. And if you confess that, God will heal you. And I responded, have you ever read the book of Job? What did Job do wrong? Nothing. It was what Job did right. So that is not always the case. Yes, it can be. In the case of Jonah, it's Jonah's problem. God was teaching him, and some people, he has to do it this way to finally get through their thick head. But sometimes God has us go through pains and sufferings simply because when we experience it, we now can be used by him to help people who are going through pains and sufferings. I really debate whether to say this or not. But I think I will, because I think it'll be helpful. My wife will forgive me for this one. I know, she's wondering now what's he doing. <laughs> I didn't see this slide when I was looking at the grammar on these. But God sometimes has us go through difficult times. We went through seven miscarriages. I don't know why. I do not know. I do not believe for a moment it was God punishing us. And I remember when she had her first one, and I was at her side after she had come out of surgery, and I was sitting in the room with her, and a pastor to the church we were attending was sitting with us, and one of the elders was sitting there with us also. And she's not all quite there. That didn't come out like I wanted um, the anesthesia still had an effect on her. Well, that's a little better. Um, she wasn't quite thinking coherently all the way through, but I remember uh, as she was talking, I know she has no memory of this, but sh she was saying, why is God punishing me? Why is God punishing me? And we were all telling her, God is not punishing you. He tests us at times. And there have been times that I have been able since going through that seven times, that I've been able to help somebody who's gone through that because I've wore those shoes. And God uses us in ministry in times like this. 
So if you're going through something really difficult right now, it might not be that there's some sin, like it might not be a Jonah thing that God is bringing a hardship on you because you've got some unconfessed sin. I'll tell you, it's a good thing to check. You should check this. Okay, Lord, is there something wrong? Is there something wrong in my walk with you? Is, is something happening? I'm not, I've got something that's separating and damaging our relationship that I need to change. Sometimes he does that, but a lot of times it's not that. He's having you go through a difficult time so that you will be more useful to him. More useful. So it is an interesting faith lesson. Nobody likes going through those, but God does that. He's mysterious. We can't comprehend him, when, why he does these kind of things, but he does it. So you young people, don't always think that when something bad goes on that you did something wrong. Sometimes God is prepping you, even at your young age, for what might come in the future. Mm -hmm. Well, going on to verse 10. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Now I want to I show you something. Who's talking now? The Lord. Earlier in these verses we've been looking at, and even last week, what was the word used for the Lord in speaking? I'm sorry? It was God, which was the word Elohim. Now it's changing. It's been Elohim, Elohim, Elohim. Now it changes to a different name of God. God is now speaking to him, and it's the I am that I am. The Yehovah, or Yahweh, or Yehovah. As we've talked about before, Jehovah, the Yehovah is the same thing as Yahweh, just they put Adonai letters in that when they made vowels, but that's what that is. That's the holy name of God. And as you read that, you know, a lot of times, okay, it's God says this, God says that, God says that, then the Lord says this. And we just a lot of times go over that without thinking. But there is a specific name change here. That this is the almighty the the most holy name of god here speaking the i am that i am is speaking to you now so god created both the people of nineveh and that plant yeah he, he created them all the elohim god the creator god did that but also the the i am that i am in jonah's mind though here's the problem with jonah the plant the stupid dumb plant was more important to him than the lost people in the city down on the plain. That's what he was all upset about, was the stupid, dumb little house plant sitting behind him. And he's losing everything, can't even keep his mind straight, is not even thinking correctly because he's all worried about this stupid plant that got eaten by worm or worms. The people down there who are dying, who were the enemies of Israel, yes, but they were Gentiles, yes, but they were still God's creation. God is still sovereign over them. God is saying that is what's more important. And really, God had been blessing these Assyrians. The Assyrian capital, they obviously had, I mean, there's a lot of people living there. They obviously had enough water. They were getting enough rain. Where did the rain come from? It comes from God because he's sovereign over nature. Um, the crops, the soil is producing enough food for them all to eat. God was blessing them that way. Even though they're sinning totally against God, they have knowledge of God, but they don't want anything to do with him. They have their own idols that they've made instead. Those are the things that are important to them. Still yet, God has been blessing them. And blessing them so much that he let them become a world power. 
God is still concerned about these people. Jonah's not. So God is correcting him. Plant? That's what you're upset about? The plant? When people are dying, you're worried about a plant? So a little comparison. Again, since we have a comparison, make a T-chart. We look at God's concern with the Ninevites versus Jonah's care and the cotton-picking plant. So God with Nineveh, God cared for the people. Jonah, no, he cared about a plant. Isn't that wild? I mean, really? We've got a favorite house plant or something like that? Wow, that plant's more important than any person I know. That was Jonah's thinking. God was concerned about the people in Nineveh. Jonah can't get his mind off the cotton-picking plant. God was their creator. Jonah didn't create that plant. Do you know that he didn't even water that plant or fertilize that plant? He didn't even plant the seed. God did it all for him. That's what he's thinking of. Oh, my plant. Really? Your plant? Whose plant is it? God tended Ninevites. He tended them. He shepherded them. He, kept, he did bless them. We often lose sight of stuff like this, but God was still blessing this nation. Jonah did nothing for that plant. With God and Nineveh, people have an eternal significance. A plant doesn't have any eternal significance. And that's where Jonah's attention was. God's concern for human life. Jonah, we see here, is extremely selfish. Concerned about himself. How the people would view him. A false prophet, whatever. But he's so concerned about himself. And then lastly, God's love is displayed here. <laughs> and here we see Jonah um, has his spiritual priorities misaligned. He's totally on the wrong page. He's not in the wrong ballpark. He's in the wrong city. He is so far off of where he should be thinking. Um, I like how Unger's, in Unger's commentary in the Bible, he puts it this way. How like Jonah are God's people when they're more concerned about material benefits and worldly comforts than about the destiny of the lost and dying world. That sums up basically this whole book is right there. That's a great quote. I love that commentary. Unger's uh, excellent commentary in the Old Testament. If you want to get a good, it, he has an excellent Old Testament commentary. It's a one volume thing. It's, it's fantastic. It's not very expensive. It's a really, really good um, uh, one. And, uh, commentary, and he goes a lot into Jonah. Uh, he spends a lot, of, a lot of time in Jonah. So, looking at verse 11 now. This is the last verse of the chapter. Now we're coming to this historic moment. <laughs> but the last verse of this, this entire book, it says, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Now, there's a couple of interesting things here. First of all, this ends in a question. The whole book ends in a question. We'll talk about that in a moment. It talks about, after he's talking about people, he mentions cattle. Sounds a little strange, doesn't it? God's talking about all these people that are lost and stuff like this. And there's a lot of cattle there. There is a reason for this. And another thing that's puzzled a lot of people about this is a city in which 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left. 
Now, I've heard a lot of different stories on this. Some people say, well, that's just a, uh, an estimation of the amount of people there. Others say it's a play on words with numbers in there that's really meaningless. Don't get concerned about it. Actually, as I researched this and I went back, um, actually, I did this a number of years ago because I was so puzzled about this verse. Um, I started looking at ancient documents and looking at um, translations of ancient documents and, and things. And I came to find out that this is a phrase where it says, who do not know their right hand from their left. It's actually a common phrase in the ancient world for referring to a group of people. Who does not know their left hand from their right? Children. In other words, God is telling Jonah, there's 120,000 children living in that city. It was a way who don't know their left hand from the right children many times don't understand the right from wrong aspect. That's what this is a common ancient phrase of. So, now critics who have heard this and have studied this too, they say there is no way that city could be that big. But remember, as we talked about Nineveh back in the beginning part of this lesson, this city was huge. It had a large suburb population all the way around it. And um, archaeologists estimate there was easily uh, over 300,000 people that lived in Nineveh at this time. So 120,000 of them being children, that makes perfect sense. So um, it is an actual ancient way of describing children. Someone who doesn't know their left hand from their right. So that's what, if that ever puzzled you, I believe that's what the answer is, because you've got to go back to ancient texts to figure that out. Um, why does he talk about cattle? Well, who, who is Jonah concerned about? The cotton-picking plant. In God's mind, even cattle are more important than a cotton-picking house plant. And so that's why he's mentioning this. It's more of a teaching um, coming down on Jonah. Yes, he was. God was coming down on him because his only concern was that plant. And he says, you're, you're not even thinking about the little children that are, gonna, that are out there that I could have, you know, I could easily kill. That's what you're wanting me to just go out there and kill them all. You're not even thinking of these lost souls of people that I care about. And the thing is, they have a lot of cattle down. You're, you're worried about the cotton picking plant. You should at least, Jonah, be concerned about all the animals down there. They have more significance than your stupid plant, and Jonah doesn't quite catch that. So that's why God uses that phrase. So Jonah learned some lessons the hard way. Yeah, he did. In chapter 1, Jonah learned that God is, he's everywhere, omnipresent. He, he is everywhere, and he is sovereign. We see this all through this book. He is sovereign over nature. That's one lesson you can grant right away in chapter 1, you get that. A second lesson that Jonah learned the hard way, that Jonah learned that God is a pardoning God. In chapter 2, even though he sinned greatly because he is a missionary, a prophet of God, he turns and runs the opposite direction, God still pardoned him in the bowels of the fish, where he was like entombed. Yet God pardoned him and had the fish spit him up. So God is a pardoning God. There's a great old hymn, I think it was a Welsh hymn, uh, who is a God like, or who is a pardoning God like thee? It's, it's a classic old hymn. I don't think we've ever, I don't remember ever singing it here, but it's, I'm sure it's in the hymnal. It's a great song. 
And it's all about the pardoning God, that he is such a pardoning God, that he could pardon not just, he would have pardoned Israel if they'd asked and repented, but who repented? The enemy, the Assyrians, the most evil culture in the world, and God forgave them. As I say, that's the greatest miracle in this whole book. In chapter 3, Jonah learned that no one can outsin God's grace if they repent. Again, talking about how bad these Assyrians were. And that's a message we all need to keep in mind. No one can outsin God's grace. God's grace is always available. What he wants is repentance. And repentance is not the same of just saying, I'm sorry. Saying you're sorry, that's asking for forgiveness. To repent, you ask that, but you're also making a pledge when you repent. God, I hope to never, ever do this again. Help me not to do this again. That's repentance, and that's what Jesus taught, and that's what he asks of us today, too. And then the fourth lesson as we've had here tonight, Jonah learned that God has compassion for even the most evil and lost sinners in the world. Hmm. Yes. A pardoning God. Man, I'd love to sing that song got a great bass section yeah it's a great song so it is interesting that this book though ends with a question and we don't get an answer to it actually it's not the only book in the Bible like that Nahum ends the same way with a question the only two books in the Bible that do this Nahum the other minor prophet and Jonah both end with a question what I find is ironic is that both of these are talking about Nineveh Nineveh is the focus in the book of Nahum. And Jonah, of course, we've seen what Jonah's about, how Nineveh is all through this book. In Nahum, God is punishing, and Nahum is the one who's predicting, because the people had turned away. After Jonah had left or died or whatever, the people go back to their, their evil ways. They become even more evil than they were before. And then Jonah, or I'm sorry, then Nahum, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, is telling the people, his people, what God is going to do to that city. And it's exactly, we talked about this in one of the lessons prior, how Nineveh was destroyed, and I I quoted things right out of the book of Nahum. Um, So Jonah ends with a question about showing God's uh, mercy and grace to Nineveh, where Nahum is talking specifically on what is about to happen to that great city. Um, But both of them end with a question. It's interesting that they're both dealing with Nineveh. Fascinating. So it's one of these books that you are supposed to think about. God poses you with a question. What's more important in this book? What's more important to you? House plants? The things that give you comfort in life? Or winning the lost? Which is more important? I remember the thing that that really sold me for coming up to Fort Wilderness and working at Fort. Back in 97, my wife and I were listening to Dan Hayden. Many of you know Dan Hayden. Um, He was speaking at Fort Wilderness, and he made a comment on the last day he was speaking where he said, Christians, we're coming into the last days of the last days, and we have to reach the loss, even if it means changing jobs and careers. And my wife and I had just that morning talked about the possibility of me quitting where I was teaching and coming up here and working at Fort. And Jonah, that's this whole thing here with Jonah. What is more important to you, your comforts, your your, your TVs, your nice uh, soft sofa, um, your football team. What's more important? Is it that kind of stuff or is it reaching the loss? Which one's more important? That's the question God is asking. That's why he asked that question at the end. It's a question you're supposed to ponder. Other prophets of God, you know, talked about 
this also. Uh, we talked about Nahum, how it prophesies. Zephaniah also is another prophet that prophesied against Nineveh. In Zephaniah 2, verse 13, he says, And he will stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolation, a dry waste like a desert, which is exactly what happened. Nineveh got swallowed up in a sandstorm and just disappeared from history until the like 1880s. No one even thought it was a real city. They thought it was a mythical place until it was discovered. And unfortunately, they were still digging this thing out when ISIS came into power now. But as we've also said, none of it didn't last long. In 612, um, just one generation after Jonah, one generation later, Nineveh gets destroyed. Um, laid waste by the Babylonians and the Medes, they combine and uh, they conquer Nineveh and destroy it. Exactly as Nahum had predicted. Everything, he, he predicted exactly how the city would fall and it fell that way. Phenomenal. So, I love this. The book of Jonah, God will save those who call on his name. He loves you. He wants to have an everlasting relationship with you. And you cannot out God's grace. That's the book of Jonah. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this time we've had. And Lord, what a marvelous book. What a challenging book. And I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit just speaks to us as we answer this last question that you pose to us. Lord, I thank you so much for each person who's come. And I do pray that your Spirit will continue to teach as this evening goes on, maybe even now into the night, that your Spirit will just keep bringing up parts of this and help us to question. I thank you for each person that has come, and I ask that you give them all a special blessing for, Lord, making the sacrifice to come out and listen, and that your Spirit would teach them. So we pray that you will bless us and that we'll be able to start up another one of these this fall. Until then, we still continue to glorify and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.